0: and welcome to feed and flourish the bite-sized podcast series from the Cloasters forum with me hannah mckinnis in this series i'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet the Cloasters forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the swiss alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges
1: Hello, my name is Andrew Mitchell. I'm a zoologist and I've been at the front line of conservation and of nature for the last 40 years. And currently, I run a company called Equilibrium Futures that's trying to find a new balance between natural capital and financial capital.
0: And I know you have a focus on tropical forests, but if you're looking at food systems and food supply systems in general, Where biodiversity is concerned, what do you think are the most important issues at the moment, the biggest problems that the world is facing?
1: Well, I think for the last decade, we've had a really good focus on climate change, and rightly so. And I think what's going to happen in the next decade is there's going to be a big shift from an obsession about fossil fuels to an obsession with the world's food system. And the reason why is that there's something wrong with our food system. First, it's the biggest destroyer of nature on our planet and that's not good for anyone. We're seeing a kind of car crash happening in nature and also our food systems are making us sick. Uh, The biggest bed blocker in the NHS in England is diabetes. And most of that is caused by health-related and food-related problems. So we've got these two big things, the collapse in nature and the fact that our food systems are making us ill by not allowing us to eat the right things. And that's all, of course, combined with lifestyle. So it's going to shift just from fossil fuels and how we are using our energy in our lives to the kind of food we're eating and where it comes from.
0: And when we think then of the food that we eat and where it comes from, and we look at our modern food systems, how are they affecting biodiversity and biodiversity specifically in and the health of tropical forests, which I know that you have looked into a lot and spent a lot of time in?
1: Well, uh, you know, 40 years ago, I was paddling up canoes into some of the most unexplored parts of our planet, covered in beautiful tropical rainforests. And it would take me days to go in, and I, with my, our teams, we'd see fantastic uh, green trees everywhere. Climbing big mountains, you'd see an ocean of green. So if you take Mount Mulu, the second highest mountain in Borneo, when I climbed to the summit of that in 1978, I could look out and see green everywhere. Well, today, if I look out from the summit of that mountain, it still looks green. But it's not rainforest. It's all palm oil plantations. So what has happened is our... As population has grown, our appetite for food and different kinds of foods has grown, and agriculture has become industrialized. That means it needs a lot of land. Things grow faster in the tropics, and the casualty have been tropical forests. So in Asia, palm oil has been the main cause, and also, of course, uh, led by the timber industry uh, to produce an oil, a vegetable oil that's used in shampoos, cakes, cookies. Uh, It's quite a surprise to discover that almost half of it that's imported into Europe ends up in petrol tanks. If you go to Asia, there it's uh, the cattle industry that's the first line of attack on forest to create beef. 20% of that is exported from Brazil around the world to China and Europe. Uh, and then after that, soy. Soya is used to feed our pigs, chickens and cows in Europe and in China. So these uh, commodities like palm oil, paper and pulp, beef and soya are responsible for the destruction of almost 60% of all life on Earth.
0: It's really interesting because a lot of people, when they're thinking of what they can do as individuals or how we need to change things in order to make it better, emphasize meat eating and moving away from meat eating. But you've mentioned palm oil, which is, of course, in so many foods, and soy as well. What do you advocate when people are thinking about changing their lifestyle? Should they be trying to move away from meat eating?
1: Well, there's two things. First, we need to know where our food is coming from so we can decide whether it's good or bad. And what do we mean by good or bad? Uh, That's another big problem. So standards, metrics and things like that come into it. For most people who are wandering around a supermarket and thinking, you know, I, I haven't got time to look at all the tiny labels on every product I buy to see whether it's got palm oil in it or not or it's really hard. So one of the things that's got to happen is that we need to be able to track where food is coming from, right from where it is grown, right onto the supermarket shelf, and then deliver that information to people in a way that's super easy. And I think one way we can do that is through new technology. So one of the systems my uh, think tank called Global Canopy in Oxford developed was uh, with uh, some friends in Sweden, was a thing called Trace.Earth. And by buying up hundreds of thousands of VAT receipts in Brazil, combining that with satellite imagery, combining it with biodiversity data and loads of other data, we can actually track the movement of uh, soya, for instance, from where it is grown in Brazil, right the way across Brazil to the ports, to the ships, and right the way into Europe, China, or any country in the world. And by clicking on the map, you can see exactly where the stuff is coming from and whether it's associated with bad stuff like high rates of deforestation or not. So that's a kind of a starting point, and we can get better and better at that by introducing blockchain, which can track every single transaction so that you can, as a supermarket, as a buyer in a big supermarket, you'll be able to trace this food exactly where it's coming from, every transaction. But it takes a long time. Then the second thing you get the problem with is, how does a member of the public receive that information when they're busy and trying to get food for their families? I think what will happen is in the future, we'll be able to walk into our supermarkets with a, on an app where our food preferences are pre-programmed. You'll be able to walk down the aisle. You can probably have a speaker in your ear and it'll tell you where to go to find exactly the food you want. So that something that has got sustainable palm oil in it or no palm oil in it or something which is a vegan substitute for meat. That's how we can make it much easier for people. We've got a long way to go. The other side, of course, is lifestyle and what food do we uh, really want to eat. And that's a personal choice. And we've seen an incredible rise in veganism, which was a kind of quirky, cranky thing a few years ago. And now, particularly amongst young people, is growing very fast. So that tells us something. People are not happy with the kind of food they're eating. And one thing we definitely need to do is to reduce emissions in the agricultural production industry, both in transport and the way things are grown. And beef is uh, one way is to cut down uh, on the amount of beef. I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. I do still eat meat, but not very much of it. Once or twice a week, and I'm just cut it down and down and down. I think a lot of people should get on that path. I'm not suggesting we all have to go vegetarian, but I think we need to cut down the amount of meat. You know, when I was a kid, you had a, a meat dish, It was the vegetables with a few bits of meat on top. Now we've turned that on its head and you go to a restaurant, you've got a great slab of meat on top. You can't even see the vegetables. That's bonkers. It's making us sick as people and it's making the earth sick as well. We've got to change that.
0: It's all very well. Many of us, though, feel a bit helpless, don't we? I mean, you think, oh, well, if I don't eat meat or if I change my diet as an individual, it's never going to help because deforestation and industrial farming are being encouraged. It's it's big business and and governments who are in charge. I mean, do you see a future in which those things are changing and attitudes at the top are ready to change?
1: Well, you know, uh, yeah, governments can only really do what the public allow them to do in democracies. One of the big problems, if you're at the top as an elected government, is that if you bring in big carbon taxes, people run out in the street and get cross. Uh, and you get the gilets jaunes uh, that's happened in France, and uh, or when we had carbon taxes in Britain, uh, the population need to take the medicine and be willing to do so. But, and politicians can't get ahead of that. So that requires a lot of education, a lot of change. That people have to be prepared. That lifestyles cannot stay the same. And one thing that COVID nineteen has taught us is how we can adapt to the most extraordinary constraints on our lifestyle. Not forever, but this virus has. Um, indicated to us that it is possible to change lifestyles in a very dramatic way. And if we're going to deal with climate change, deal with the car crash happening in nature, we are going to have to change our our lifestyles and eat differently, travel differently and use different kinds of energy. So we need to use different kinds of food. What's fascinating is how new kinds of foods are now coming out. uh uh, for instance i I was in new york in january needed a coffee couldn't find a restaurant went into dunking donuts which i'd never been to in my life thinking i'll get an icing bun and a coffee and i came out with a beyond meat burger i didn't even know they sold them just tasted just like any other burger but there wasn't any meat in it and so uh, these sorts of new kinds of industries are going to completely shake up Uh, the food industry process. Another thing is insect protein, for instance. You might not think it's very nice to eat insects. I used to enjoy eating uh, big caterpillars on a stick in the jungle, five for a dollar. So they're actually quite good and crunchy. It's just like eating a prawn, really. It's no different from eating a prawn. And um, so what's happening is that Um, insect protein is again being grown in industrialized conditions producing a new source of protein you can use that for aquaculture and make fish which we might like to prefer to eat than the insects and um, and that means we don't need to take so much anchovies out of the sea to use as fish meal which is ridiculous so there are new kinds of foods that are going to come out which all of us are going to have to be open to trying.
0: I can in fact say that I've had a cereal bar made out of cricket powder I think it was and uh, it was absolutely delicious but um, you mentioned corona and of course it has been tragic in huge ways and changed many lives for the worse and and for the foreseeable future but it has forced people to reevaluate food systems and their relationship with food systems in some ways that could be a positive going forward or what lessons do you think we might have learnt from this time?
1: Well I think one thing that's always a good thing to do is is to turn a crisis into something that's positive and I Mm. think one of the positive things that will come out of corona is a better understanding of why it's happened and that that will change amongst other things the movement of money. One thing apart from all the desperate human impact it has had and the desperate families who have lost loved ones, it's also uh, dropped a $10 trillion bomb into our financial system globally. I've been writing about this recently. And the reason why this is so important is that unless we change the movement of money, we will continue to finance ourselves into extinction. It's all about money. It's the right money doing the wrong thing. And it's our money. It's the people's money that's doing it. It's your pension fund or it's your bank account. You never think about when you put all your money in the bank every month from the job you might have, what is happening to that money? How is that being lent? If you put money into a pension fund, it's the same thing. You forget about it almost until you hope it pays out. But you don't think about what kind of world you're living in when that money does pay out. And uh, I once talked to a Chinese asset manager, and he said, we've learned in China, there's not much point in having a pension fund if when it pays out, you can't breathe the air. That's the point. We need to think about the movement of money. Now, COVID 19 has dropped this bomb in the world. And what I'm hoping people will begin to realize is that the origin of the virus is unrecognized biodiversity risk in the financial system. The origins of this virus come eventually and ultimately from environmental degradation and poverty, which is particularly occurring in Africa and Asia. And the vast amounts of money that have gone into rolling back nature and replacing it with unsustainable agriculture has led to the trade, illegal wildlife trade in animals that used to live in those forests, and in particular, pangolins and bats. And these animals are traded. I mean, 100,000 pangolins a year were being traded out of Asia and Africa into China and Vietnam. They end up in these wildlife markets. And they get mixed up with lots of other animals like civet cats, dogs, even koala bears and bats. And Crucially, the bats have the coronaviruses in them. And they, by mixing all these animals up on the same slab where they've been cut up for either medicine or for food, the virus jumps in all the blood systems and it mutates. And the coronavirus from the bats seems to have gone from a bat into possibly a pangolin. And that turbocharged the virus and created... Um, in the genome, if you look at it, I'm not going to get into the detail of that, but if you look at the genome, uh, it created an opportunity for it to become more sticky onto human cells, which allows the virus to insert its RNA and take over our cells. Uh, our cells. And uh, that, has, that those conditions have been created by the businesses that are degrading nature and the finance that's going into it. And these are not not criminals, necessarily. The people doing the trade are criminals. This is environmental crime. And environmental crime is scaled up to about 250 billion a year. It's absolutely huge. So what we as individuals need to start asking questions about is, how is my money being used? And am I happy with that? So in the same way, we think about how we use our energy. Now we're thinking about how we use our food. Next, we're going to start thinking about how is our money being used and is it making the earth safe or less safe?
0: It's so fascinating. And as I mentioned, having a bite-sized podcast when the issues are this big is tricky. But you talked about environmental crime and about palm oil. Can I ask you specifically about palm oil? Because actually people have been in touch since starting this podcast, intrigued about it and about businesses saying that they use sustainable palm oil. Is that a justifiable replacement? Can it be sustainable?
1: Well, look, there's a whole podcast just in this subject, so it's hard to answer in simple terms. But the palm oil industry has been a major driver of the conversion of forests. There is no doubt about that. Uh, The palm oil industry is also affected by corruption and all sorts of uh, difficulties too. But there are plenty of companies that are producing palm oil to the highest uh, possible standard. And that is about 50% of the industry. The problem is that they're often running well-paid and well-managed plantations like Unilever and other companies like that. But about 50% of the supply is coming from poor families who have just got a few hectares and a few trees and are doing the best they can to feed their families. And they haven't got the money to meet the high standards that we might require in the, re- in, in the West. So it's very difficult for those millions, and there are millions of them, of those poor families to meet these high standards. So one of the constraints is if you impose these high sustainability uh, requirements on these families, um, they, they could go out of business. And for governments, therefore, like Indonesia and Malaysia, that's why they do a lot of pushback on these issues to do with sustainable palm oil, because they're worried about these families not being able to meet the high costs that the big companies can meet, which are often Western companies, and exposed to uh, Western attacks by organizations like uh, Greenpeace, which do a very good job of sticking a a stick in the ribs and and forcing a high standard. That's all needed. But if you run that all the way down to the poor people, and that's where their votes are coming from. So that's one of the issues. The ordinary punter in the street what you need to look for is byproducts that ha- are using sustainable RSPO certified palm oil. That's about as good as you can get, and it certainly isn't perfect, but it is much better than the rest. And only about 20% of all the palm oil that's produced is RSPO certified. That means 80% has not taken those constraints at all and could well be causing the destruction of forests. Even some of the RSPO certified. Uh, stuff is causing the destruction of forests because it gets so complicated all the way down that supply chain from London to the mountains of Papua New Guinea. You don't know what's going on there. It takes It's really hard to control it if you're a big multinational. And always you can find somebody who's making a mess of it. And that's how Greenpeace and, and it gets into the papers. So I think the best thing you can do, I mean, if you want to be binary about it, some families will say, you know what, I'm not going to buy a product that's got palm oil in it at all. And that's the only way to be certain that I'm not involved in the rainforest destruction. So that is a definite way to go. For others, if you want to have a more nuanced approach, then go for things that have got RSPO certified palm oil. Trouble is, you look on a packet of chocolate, you don't know. Uh, it might not even tell you that it's got palm oil, it might just say vegetable oil or it might just say palm or Palmitate. There's 200 different names for palm oil derivatives. So it's really tough. What I'd advise is, it's a choice you make yourself. Go on to websites, look at what products have palm oil, don't have palm oil, or have something in between that's certified and make your own choices.
0: You, you talk about finance a lot and poorer families in, in poorer places across the world who don't have a choice. It feels to me, it always comes down to the fact that the thing that most preserves biodiversity in the planet is the most expensive for the consumer or the hardest to come by monetarily. Is that not right? Here, eating local or from your local farmer's market, all of it is for much more fortunate people. Most people don't have the ability to make those sorts of choices, to be able to eat beyond meat. It's expensive to have those products that help preserve the environment. And we need to change that, isn't that right?
1: Well, this is another fundamental thing that I'm working on. It's tough to do. And that is we don't pay the true cost of things, do we? If you put a litre of fuel in your car, the cost of damaging the atmosphere is not in that litre of fuel. So it looks cheap. And people say, oh, electric cars are expensive. Uh, and uh, wind energy is expensive, and that's because we don't pay the true damage costs of the alternatives that we have become used to using. If you actually priced in the loss of our atmosphere into fossil fuel energy, it would be out of business tomorrow, and all the wind farms and everything else and solar would look fantastically cheap, because all they stuff up, in the case of a wind farm, is the view. That's very different. It's the same with food. If you get a piece of chicken from Thailand in a shop and it costs you a pound for half a kilo of chicken, well, how on earth is that possible? Uh, And it's possible because it's produced at an industrial scale uh, on the other side of the world, feeding on soy that's been causing the destruction of forests from Brazil. And the damage costs that come out of that in the form of bird flu and the emissions to transport it around the world and everything else are not included in the price of that chicken. It's probably actually a $20 piece of chicken, but we don't pay that. So we have to look at, and and this is beginning to happen actually, it's going to take some time, but we have to look at paying the true cost of things and repricing uh, 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 things that currently look very, very cheap. But the problem is it's something called externalities. These hidden costs, and particularly the destruction of nature, is one of those hidden costs, are not borne by the private companies that make the products. So it's private profits. And public losses and the destruction of nature is called an externality in economics but boy does that externality turn around and bite you when it's called coronavirus and that's why we have to take these things much more seriously so that we come to terms with the costs the hidden costs of how our money is moving
0: fascinating i think that's a brilliant place to end thank you so much thank you